Uh, good morning, church. It's great to see you. I'm so glad you're here. We are in a series that we've called Revival, and all of us are aware of the need personally from time to time to be renewed, to be revived. We know it's true in the life of the church. We know it's certainly true in the life of our culture at large that we need periods of renewal where God, God comes and God reveals himself to people. And so we've been praying that God would revive us again. Today I want to look at two uh, references of Scripture, one verse from Psalm 85 and then from John's Gospel, chapter 7. We'll project these words on the screen for you. And it is our custom here at Union Chapel to stand as we hear God's Word, and so I'll invite you to do so as you are able. Thank you so much. Psalm 85, verse 6, the psalmist writes, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? And then from John's Gospel, chapter 7, this is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the high feasts in the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Tabernacles, of course, celebration of God's faithfulness for His goodness to the people as they wandered in the wilderness. They lived in tabernacles or tents for those 40 years. So the Feast of Tabernacles celebrating God's goodness to them and faithfulness in those years. And Jesus stood up on the last and greatest day of the festival and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now may God instruct us, inspire us through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now, here's a statement. See if you agree with this. See if you agree with this statement. Here it goes. Jesus Christ is our only hope in this life and the next. Do you agree? You agree, you agree that's true? Well, if you believe that, then you'll also probably believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that he is the door through which we enter into a relationship with God, that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the life giver. No matter the answer that you seek, Jesus presents himself as the hope and life and truth. Jesus satisfies all the longings of our lives. Knowing Jesus really matters. Jesus is Lord. Now, if you agree with those statements, contrast that truth with the seemingly spiritually trepid condition of the modern American church. People everywhere are sensing that something is missing in the life of the church. We have a form of religion, but no power. We have, we have many churchmen and women who find no thrill any longer in personal devotion, no desire to be an effective witness for Christ, no hunger to really go into the deeper things of God. You can interpret the signs of our times as perplexing. That's a word that the New Testament uses. People having become perverse, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, haters of God. You know, it's one thing to pursue pleasure and to chase after that, but it's another thing at the same time to hate God. We actually live in a day now where good is described as evil and evil is described as good. And we could spend all morning now going through the litany of issues that are wrong and problems that need to be solved. But I'd like for us to take a different approach. 
I'd like for us to imagine the opportunity that God is giving us as the people of faith in this time, in this culture. An opportunity is the right word. It's an opportunity for us to be an authentic witness of Jesus Christ in the world. There's another way then to interpret the signs of the times. Perhaps the patterns and the behaviors of so many of our fellow countrymen are evidence of a greater reality. Think about it this way. Perhaps the most compelling issue evidenced by such waywardness is at a far deeper level than we imagine. Perhaps there is a desperate cry being made. Is that possible? A heart cry saying, what is ultimate reality? What is truth? Who am I and why am I here? What is spiritual reality and what is spiritual reality to me? What is the purpose and meaning of my life? And that comes from a deep, deep, deep place. And if we will, if we will step just to the side a little bit and get a different perspective on the culture in which we live and the behavior patterns of people, we might get a glimpse at the real serious heart cry, spiritual desperateness that so many people have. Is it possible then that millions are searching for answers, searching for that deeper meaning, significance, purpose, longing for authentic connections, for meaningful relationships, and a hope that is lively and enduring? Is it possible that we've just generated a culture that has lost the quality of hope and in need of that hope once again? So here we are in the church, and we're a bunch of Christians. We get together, we talk it over, and we wonder what the next move should be. Maybe the next move should be that we deepen our connection with Jesus Christ, deepen our connection and relationship in Christian community, and that we foster within us the kind of hope that the world desperately needs. Maybe God's call and opportunity for us now is to effectively model for the world what authentic Christianity looks like and the wonderful peace, assurance, and significance that that brings to a human life. That may be the call of God to us. D.L. Moody years ago told the true story of a ship that was trying to find the piers and dock in Cleveland, Ohio, as the ship sailed on a stormy Lake Erie night. What happened that night is reminiscent of what's taking place in the church today. That night, the lighthouse on the shores of Cleveland was burning bright, but because of the storm, all of the lights in the city had gone out. And even though the lighthouse was shining bright, the ship couldn't orient itself properly, and it, and it wrecked, and lives were lost. And what we find in comparison to that event is that the light of the world, Jesus Christ, is still shining brightly. But somehow, we failed to let the light of Jesus Christ shine through us in such a convincing way that lives and souls and precious people are now being shipwrecked. So this is the challenge before us. The opportunity before us is to be an authentic witness for Jesus Christ in a dark, dark time. And so we need to be revived. We need the, we need the fire stoked. We need our passions renewed. And so we ask the question, what does it mean to be revived? Uh, revival is something that can easily be misunderstood. The psalmist said, will you not revive us again that we might rejoice in you? In, in you? And so revival then... Some people misperceive it as a series of protracted meetings. 
designed to whip up interest in the church or maybe some kind of excited emotionalism in, in religion. But those, those aren't revival. We may schedule meetings to facilitate revival, but it's not to manufacture it. Revival is not man-made. It is God-sent. Revival is not program-planned. It is God-breathed. The word revival literally means to wake up and live. Wake up spiritually and live. That's a pretty good definition, isn't it? To wake up spiritually and experience life. So Jesus stood on the last day of the festival and he said, If any person, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Now I want to put a statement on the screen for you. Here's what I think God's calling us to. We need to position ourselves for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And this he spoke of the, of the Spirit, which was to be poured out. And he said, from within you will flow rivers of living water. What a beautiful image. What a beautiful promise. And so we need to position ourselves. Now, I've placed in your outline today a number of Old Testament references, which, interestingly enough, are, are references from Old Testament prophets and authors indicating God's desire to pour out His Spirit and to bring revival to His people. You'll note, if you study those verses on your own, the, the, the phrase, I will. God speaking to His people saying, I will pour water upon you, a dry and thirsty land. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. I will restore the years the locust has eaten. And so time and time again, we hear the promises of God indicating His desire to refresh us, to renew us, to help us wake up and live. William Carey said it this way, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Isn't that a great statement? The future is as bright as the promises of God. And so we need to cling to these promises. We live in the age of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out and God has given us of this gift and this refreshing presence. We simply need to lay hold of that which God is willing to do. Now, how do we position ourselves? Three brief thoughts this morning. Position ourselves for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The first is to get thirsty. Get thirsty. It's in your outline. Get thirsty. Everyone say that with me. Get thirsty. Jesus' words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. King David prayed, Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Have you ever been in a season in your life where you wondered why you were in that circumstance? Why? God, why this? Why me? Why now? Why, why do I feel so lonely? Why do I feel so desperate? Why, why do I feel so confused? Why this trial? Why this tribulation? Why this tragedy? Have you ever wondered why God sends you into the desert or why he allows you to go into the, into the desert? Here's something that I figured out about desert life, and that is simply this. When God leads you or allows you to go into the desert, there's always one benefit for that, and that is to make you thirsty. He takes you into the desert to make you thirsty, to make you hungry, to make you desperate for Him, longing for Him, reaching for Him. I love this statement by A.W. Tozer in the book he wrote called The Divine Conquest, and I'll put this on the screen for you. I want you to hear it. 
He said, before we can be filled with the Spirit, the desire to be filled must be all-consuming. The degree of fullness in any life accords perfectly with the intensity of true desire. See those phrases? All-consuming, true desire. Then the last statement. We have as much of God as we actually want. <laughs> Sermon's over. That's it. Any questions? Do you agree with that statement? We have as much of God as we actually want. That's alarmingly true. That's shockingly true. That's soberingly true. We have as much of God as we actually want. But if we want to have revival, we have to get thirsty. We have to get thirsty for more of Him, more of Him. Now, here's the second thing. We need to get empty. We need to get empty. Everyone say that with me. Get empty. Jesus said, out of the believer's heart will flow rivers of living water. And He spoke this about the Spirit, who those later were to receive. This has not happened because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, we know Jesus was glorified at his death and resurrection. And so Jesus was glorified, then the, the Spirit of God was, was given on the day of Pentecost, and we have been living in the age of the Spirit ever since. And so, so Jesus was not yet glorified. Until the, he was, the Spirit couldn't be poured out. But as he was, the Spirit was released. And let me just submit this to you, that as you live a life that glorifies Jesus, you become a vessel that is receptive to the flow of God's Spirit. The more there is of you in you, the less room there is for the Spirit. Richard Newhouse said it this way. It's kind of interesting. He said, it's our desire to be independent by being in control. You hear those two words? Our desire to be independent by being in control that makes us unavailable to God. Now, I wonder if there's anyone here besides me who has issues with control and self-reliance. Isn't that, isn't that what the Bible calls pride? Someone asked me recently, Pastor, what is your greatest sin? That's a loaded question for a pastor, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure they were hoping for something salacious. I, I can tell you what my greatest, I have many sins, but I can tell you what my greatest sin is. It's, a, it's the sin that I struggle with every day of my life. And it's the sin of self-sufficiency. The sin of self-reliance. The horrible deception that somehow I don't need God. All I need is me. And as long as I have me, I can take care of it. Wow. Look at me like, boy, that's, you're a mess. That's crazy. What are you thinking like that? <laughs> but we suffer from this, don't we? Because we get full of ourselves full of our own pain, full of our own story, full of our own circumstances, full of our own wounds, full of, full of ourselves. And it manifests in all kinds of weird and wacky and dysfunctional behaviors. You see, in those places in our personal lives and in the life of the community that we insist on being in control and we insist on being independent from God, these are the moments, these are the places where God is not in control. The more in control you are, the less in control God is. The Chronicler said it this way, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. This is a verse that Christians use all the time when they talk about revival. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then 
God says, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, restore their land. And so we hear this pattern. But the first thing mentioned there is we must humble ourselves. We must, we must stop saying, I do not need God. I can make my own way. I know best. I call the shots of my life and literally submit ourselves to God's plan and God's will and God's lordship in our lives. Here's a list of things that represent self-reliance and pride. Here's just a list. Now listen, don't elbow your spouse. Don't elbow your friend next to you. This won't help them. Just listen to the list. Number one, pride refuses to listen. It always interrupts others. Pride likes to talk about itself all the time. Pride self-reliance has an intense desire to be noticed. Pride believes that it deserves everything it gets. Pride is not thankful, not grateful. Pride cannot be corrected. Pride does not like to follow instructions. Dang it. Why is it I know so much about this? Pride exalts itself in the presence of others. It brags. Pride criticizes and tries to make itself look better by putting others down. Pride thinks of its own needs first. This is what pride and control and self-reliance tends to do. And boy, you can't be full of the Spirit of God. You can't get empty enough to receive God's reviving presence if you're too full of this. One of the great examples of pride that I've heard about, you've heard about this story too. I've told it here. I, I just love this true story. This is when Muhammad Ali was at the height of his physical prowess as heavyweight champion of the world as a boxer. And he was on an airplane, and the stewardess was having trouble getting Ali to sit down. And she said, Mr. Ali, the plane's about to leave. You have to sit down and put your seatbelt on. To which Ali says to her, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she quickly responded and said, yeah, Superman don't need no airplane either. Now sit down and buckle up. <laughs> don't you love that one? That's a good one. To become humble. God has a better plan. To, he calls on people to humble themselves, to bend the knee, to bring it down, to place ourselves under the authority of another. A great, a great example of this is in the life of, of Jonah. When God called him to go to Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, horrible, brutal people, and God said, go to Nineveh and tell them that judgment of God is coming if they don't repent. And Jonah finally ends up in Nineveh, and he preaches in a, from a bitter spirit. He hated the Assyrians, and he didn't want to be there. And yet he was there, and okay, I'll do it. And so he just, in an angry, bitter, hateful spirit, he says, if you don't repent, and I hope you don't, God's going to judge you, and I hope he does. And it says that the king of Nineveh said, that's enough for me. He calls the whole nation to fasting and prayer and humility. And they repented. Amazing. They humbled themselves. And God blessed them. That's what the church needs to do today. God's people need to realize that we were nothing when he found us. We are nothing right now without him, and we'll be nothing tomorrow unless he's with us in power. We were nothing when he found us. Nothing. We are nothing right now without him, and we'll be nothing tomorrow unless he gives us grace. That's a fact. That's the truth. And so we should humble ourselves under his mighty hand. I pray that a spirit of repentance would fall on us, 
That we would change our mind and change our thinking and that we would get empty. You know, Christian people like to talk about revival, like to talk about it, like to imagine it, like to see the effects of it, like to have worship services that are oriented that way, like to hear sermons about revival. We like everything about revival except we are unwilling to get hungry enough and thirsty enough and empty enough to actually see it happen in our lives. That's the challenge before us. That's the call of God. Get thirsty, get empty. Here's the last, here's the last thought, and that is get a grip. Get a grip on God. Get a grip on His promises, and don't let go. I love Luke chapter 11, verse 13. It says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Isn't that a beautiful promise? I mean, we, we connect with that verse, don't we? If you then, being evil, know how to give good things, we know what we're like. Are we willing to care for our children, our grandchildren? You bet. We'd give our lives for them, right? If you then, being evil, know how to give good, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? And so this is all about getting in position to do what God wants to do anyway, and that is to touch us, refresh us, and bless us with His presence and power. Well, last week I told you about three little grandmas who prayed for us at Union Chapel years ago. This was right after Beth and I had arrived at Union Chapel. This was in the late summer of 1981. Late summer of 1981. Now, for you young people in the room, this is not 1881, which would be just after the Civil War. This is 1981. Come on. Not that old. And these three little ladies, their names were Opal, Gladys, and Flossie. They walked up to me after a service on a Sunday morning, and with a smile and with great respect, they said, Pastor, we want you to know the three of us have been meeting on a regular basis for the past 30 years, praying that God would send revival to the church. We want you to know we're praying for you. 30 years of praying that God would do something extraordinary. And I thanked them, and I thought that was nice. Now fast forward just a few months, and this is the fall now of 1981, early November. And I thought we should have some kind of special services. You know, a little country church tradition says that you have a, like a fall revival, and you, you know, you, you get some things together, some plans together, and have some renewal services. And I, I said, what do you think about doing that? And the folks said, that's, that's not a good idea. I said, well, why? And they said, well, we've tried that before. It never works here. It never, never amounts to anything. I said, well, well, what happened the last time? I said, well, the last time we tried this, the first night we had about 30 people there. And then the second night, there was about 20 people there. Third night, there was about 10 people. And then the fourth night, there was only four people that showed up. I said, oh, really? And they said, yeah, Opal, Gladys, and Flossie, and the pastor. And then they said on the fifth night, the pastor stayed home. It just did not work. So I kind of made a deal with them. Well, let's try it anyway. You know, what's the harm? And so they grudgingly agreed. And we had all the right things in place. You know, Sunday night, we're going to go all week. Sunday night, we had a carry-in dinner. Because this is what you do, a carry-in. And so everybody carried in, and we had a nice meal, you know, enticed people in with a meal. So we had about 25 people who showed up. And so we got 25 people in the meeting. Now, then we sang all the, right, all the right hymns. Revive us again, victory in Jesus, power in the blood. Some of you old-timers, can you hear those hymns ringing in your head? My, I, I invited a friend of mine. His name is Mark Beeson. 
Mark has been a dear friend for over 30 years. Uh, Mark was in his 20s passionate for Jesus and still is today. Mark planted a church up in South Bend, Indiana. You pray for Mark Beeson. His church uh, this weekend will worship you know, about 5,000 people. So he's struggling, but we think he's going to be okay if it comes out of it. So pray for Mark. Mark I, so I invited Mark. He's going to be the guest preacher, the evangelist for the week. And so Sunday night, Mark got up. He preached with great passion. He just challenged people. And, you know, these are good people, salt of the earth, God-fearing people. I mean, good, good folks, but spiritually speaking, just asleep. You remember the definition of revival is wake up and live. And falling asleep spiritually is something that can happen to all of us, isn't it? You know, life happens, stuff happens. Just by reason of use, we run out of, run out of juice, run out of fuel, run out of passion. And it can happen. That's why we need periods of renewal and refreshing and revival. Revive us again, oh God, so we might rejoice. So the folks are just asleep and... Mark gave an invitation. We, we sang the invitational hymn, which was, Just As I Am. We sang all 37 verses of Just As I Am while everyone remained just the way they'd always been. <laughs> it was kind of sad. Monday night, same thing. Tuesday night, Wednesday night, same thing. No, nothing. Nothing was happening. It was so discouraging. Thursday, Mark, my friend Mark couldn't preach. He had a prior engagement. And so I preached that night. I trotted out a little dog of a sermon. I've still got the notes from the sermon I preached on that Thursday night in November of 1981. It was horrible. <laughs> it, was, it was a little dog of a sermon. I trotted out there. Come on, little doggy. And preached this little dog of a sermon. Nothing. We, we were down to singing about 10 verses of Just As I Am. Because, you know, how many times can you, just as I am. You can't go 37 verses, it'll wear you out. Anyway, we're down to 10 verses. <laughs> and you'll have to forgive me. Because the last note of the last song, nobody's moving, nothing's happening, everything is completely dead. And, and I remember, please forgive me, I remember it crossed my mind, I thought, Let's get out of here. I wonder what's on TV. I took the air into my lungs to pronounce a benediction. Everybody be blessed. You know, try to wake up, go home. So disappointed. I took the air into my lungs. And just before I pronounced a benediction, I saw movement in the room, just out of the corner of my eye, over here. A hand came up over the top of the upright piano from the woman who'd been playing the piano. The hand came up like this and just kind of waved at me, and I thought, movement in the room. Because it, like, it was like preaching to a painting. <laughs> Nothing. And so I was so thrilled that there was animation. There's somebody breathing. It's uh, remarkable. And the woman said, may I say something? I said, say something. She wants to talk. This is fantastic. I was so thrilled. I said, by all means. And she stood up put her right hand on top of that upright piano like this. She had a little hanky in her left hand. And she looked over at the little kneeling rail in front of the chancel in the Cornfield Church. And she began to reminisce. Remember, there's only about 25 people there. I mean, everybody knows each other. Heck, everybody's related to each other. It's like a family reunion. 
So she's just reminiscing, and she said, you know, I can remember when there were people at the altar of our church seeking God. She said, several years ago, there was a youth meeting here, and I remember some teenagers who were at the altar praying, seeking God. She said, it's, it's been a long time since anybody has been at the altar of our church. She's just musing. And then she said, you know, maybe the reason others haven't been to the altar to seek God is because I haven't been to the altar to seek God. And then she said this statement. This is verbatim. I can hear it just like it was 10 minutes ago. She said, yes, maybe it's my sin of indifference and going along to get along and being lukewarm in my own life that has kept others from seeking God. And when she said the word sin, maybe it's my sin, she said. Something inside of her broke. It was cracked, cracked open. And she tried to say something else, but it, it stuck in her throat, and she began to whimper and weep. And she tried one more time to compose herself, and she could not. And she put her hand with that little hanky in it and her face in her hand just like this, and she began to sob. And her shoulders began to heave, and she just stood there sobbing. It was quiet in the room just like it is quiet in this room. And I thought to myself, I wonder what that means. The next motion in the room came from the back pew. There was a good old boy in the church. His name was Archie Lee Wilson. He always sat on the back row. He was one of the church bosses, very strong personality. He was a, a farmer, a local farmer in the area. Uh, he, he liked to keep things in front of him. That's why he sat on the back row. So if something was going on in the church that he liked, he could encourage it. If something he didn't like, he could stop it. Just one of the tribal chiefs. Every church has them. Archie and I had already banged heads on a couple of occasions about disagreements we'd had. And Archie Lee stood up and he pointed his finger at me. Now, I always cracked crack my finger because he had an arthritis, he had an old bony finger like that, and he just pointed at me like this. And he, he pointed it at me and he said, Preacher! And I thought, well... Here it comes. He's going to scold me in front of everybody because I've allowed this emotional display in church and he's already made it clear to me that, that any kind of emotional display is absolutely forbidden. And so, I, so I, I, just, I grabbed the podium and I just held on. I thought, well, here it comes. And then this is what he said. He said, preacher, he said, I've been a member of this church for 45 years. I've been the chairman of the board. I've been the chairman of the trustees. I've been the superintendent of the Sunday school. He said, I've taught Sunday school in this church off and on for 40 years. And then this is what he said. And he said, and I'm sick and tired of sucking on the bottle spiritually. Only he didn't say bottle. He's an old farm boy. I looked at Beth, you know, our nonverbal, and I said, I thought, can you say that in church? Can you, use it? can you use that word in church? I didn't know. 
I guess you can. He did. No one even blinked. I haven't ever used it. <laughs> Not once. But he did. And then this is what he said, and I quote. This is verbatim. And I don't know what anyone else in this church is going to do, but I'm going to get right with God. It was surreal. It was hard to absorb. It just came it came out of nowhere, it seemed. And Archie Lee Wilson got, got up from his pew and climbed over his wife, Opal, of Opal, Gladys, and Flossy fame and came down the center aisle. Opal was right behind him. She was so happy. Opal was so happy. Oh, she was crying. Tears were running down her face. Her big smiles. Her hands were in the air. She was thanking God. Thank, see, she'd been praying for Archie Lee longer. She'd been praying for the church. And here he came, and he knelt down at that little kneeling rail. And I knelt down right beside him. Everybody got out of their pews. There's 25 people. They all got around Archie Lee. We were just standing there around him. Because everyone was just fascinated by the moment. What's happening? And I got down there nose to nose with Archie Lee, and I looked him right in the eye, and I said, Archie Lee, have you ever personally given your life to Jesus Christ and made him your personal Savior and Lord. And he looked at me, looked me right in the eyes, and in a strong voice he said, No, sir, I never have. And I thought, I thought to myself, you know, you've been, you've been leading the church for 45 years. You know, knowing Jesus, that would like help. That would like help, help you do that. But... But I didn't say that. What I said next was, I simply looked at him and said, well, would you like to make Jesus Savior and Lord of your life? And again, in a strong voice, he looked right at me and he said, I believe I would. Yes, sir. He said, I believe I would. And I grabbed him by the hand and I said, pray after me. And I led him in a simple little prayer and he invited Jesus Christ into his life to forgive his sins and be in right relationship with God. That was on a Thursday night on November the 8th, 1981. Three days later, we'd been averaging about 70 people in church. That was our average attendance out in the Cornfield Church. That following Sunday, three days later, 147 people showed up to church. There were people in that service who had not been in Union Chapel Church before that day and haven't been back since. But they were there that day because people got on the phone and people got word of mouth and they said, Archie Lee, did you hear? He got religion. Archie Lee has come to Jesus. Archie Lee Wilson has, been, has become saved. And people just out of curiosity, I'm sure they can, 147 people. And that morning on November 11th, 1981, we led 24 people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. First time decisions for Jesus. From that day till this moment, we have been in the river, the flow of God's blessing and favor and fruitfulness. We have, we have seen in these 30 plus years now, I, just, I reported this last week, we've had over 50,000 different people attend our church. 180, our junior, senior high ministry has attracted over 100,000 students in the last 15 years. We've baptized over 2,500 people in those years. 
And it's because three ladies began to pray and met the condition for revival and got thirsty enough and then got empty enough and then got a hold of God with a strong enough grip that they wouldn't let go until God did something that no one could explain. And we are the, we are the beneficiaries of the foundations that have been laid. Listen, Archie Lee Wilson, uh, he, he is a perfect example of the verse of Scripture in 2 Corinthians that says, any man, any woman who be in Christ, there's a, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. His life radically changed. Amazing transformation. It was remarkable. And a few years after that, he had a stroke, debilitating stroke. And a few years after that, he went on to heaven. And I preached his funeral, and I told his story, and more people came to Jesus. And then, and then his wife, Opal, developed dementia, and she went into the nursing home, and I'd go visit her, and she didn't know me. I'd say, Opal, do you know who I am? And she always had a big smile on her face. <laughs> She's so full of Jesus, even when her mind was gone. She had this big smile on her face, and I say, oh, I say, sweetheart, do you know who I am? She said, no, with a big smile, no, I don't know who you are. I said, I'm your pastor, I'm Pastor Greg. She said, well, hi, Pastor Greg. I said, do you know who you are? And at the very end, she, she'd go, no, I don't know who I am. I said, well, you're, you're Opal Wilson, and you love Jesus with all of your heart. And she would go, oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> Is that something? Yeah. And then Opal passed away and went to heaven to join Archie, and I preached her funeral, and I told her story, and more people came to Jesus. I asked Archie Lee that night, have you ever personally invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? How would you answer that question? How would you answer it? Have you taken that step of faith? Listen, it's not about what you do. It's about what He's already done on your behalf. You can go running, you can go searching, you can go seeking, you can go a thousand miles an hour, you can try and taste and touch and feel everything the world has to offer. You, you can go, 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 investigate every philosophy, every notion, trying to find ultimate meaning, purpose, and significance. But I'll end the same way I began this message. Jesus Christ is our only hope in this life and the next. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. Maybe you need to say yes to Him today for the first time. Maybe you need to take that step of faith. Maybe you would be as bold and courageous as Archie Lee Wilson. You know, no one asked him to come forward, but he did. He just knew what to do somehow. He, he came and he knelt and asked for help. That's humbling yourself. That's emptying yourself. That's recognizing you're thirsty. And that's when the presence and power of God flows. We're going to sing a song in just a second. And when we do, maybe you need to say yes to Jesus. There's a place to kneel here at the front. Maybe you need to unpack some stuff, unburden yourself, empty yourself of issues in your own life that keep you from a more intimate relationship with God. Maybe you need to unburden, cast your cares and anxieties on Him. Maybe you would like to come and pray as well. Whatever you need, I believe God will meet you there. If you'll get thirsty, get empty, get a grip on God's great promise for you. Amen?
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word. Now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do your work among us. Help us, Lord, to say yes, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that you might help us and set us free and give us hope. Lord, I pray for every person in this room that you would meet them right now. Speak to them personally at whatever level of faith they have and help them to take one more step toward you. That's my prayer today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said.